I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be overly kind of um, relaxed about inflation. I think it could be uh, something to worry about. But I think the real problem is like sorting out the like what the structural scarring to the economy. You know, people whole industries are now likely you know potentially changed and people's jobs may be lost. Mm. You, you've got to sort that out. And I think a green new deal is is the way. You know, making sure we are creating enough like um, quality, socially useful jobs. I think it's an opportunity to be doing that. And that, that is getting that right is more important than worrying too much about temporary rise in inflation. And, and as I said before, like the, the big kind of inflationary drivers still, you know, we've ignored. Like sorry, the places where inflation are happening in asset prices, in, in house prices. Mm-hmm. That is, you know, what policymakers ignore. And yeah, that's I mean, one of the reasons why the financial crisis is so bad, because um, we kind of, you know, taking the eye off um, what was happening to to asset prices. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get started, I just have a few short messages. First off, Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe this podcast. It's the best way to help us grow and help me get on bigger and better guests. Also, don't forget you can pre-order my book, To the Moon, The GameStop Saga, right now by following the links in the description below. We've also got a few quick sponsors for the show today. Comedy is a really crucial art form, especially in a world where government power seems to be rapidly expanding. It's one of the most effective ways to speak truth to power. And to that end, today I bring you the Behind the Bits podcast with Scott Curtis, a podcast about the tragedy and triumph of stand-up comedy. Every week, Scott has a new comedian on the show to talk about inspiration for their comedy, the struggles of the industry, and how they find themselves stumbling into the world of comedy. In one of my favourite recent episodes, Scott spoke to Liz Meal a New Jerseyite who began comedy at 16. The show can swing between hilariously funny and incredibly poignant at times. She spoke about realising the problems you had as a child in retrospect, smoking weed as a waitress, mental health, breaking rules, and the wild rollercoaster of performing on stage. You'll get Behind the Bits wherever you find your podcast. Apple, Spotify, and more. That's Behind the Bits with Scott Curtis. The best podcast to get to know the people behind the jokes. The Growth Manifesto podcast is Australia's leading business, marketing, tech, and entrepreneurship podcast. I've often said that great guests make great podcasts, and this is never more true than with the Growth Manifesto podcast. They've done an incredible amount of in-depth interviews, some of which I'd like to highlight here for you. First off, Jay Abrams. He's a legend of the marketing world. He's helped more than 10,000 clients in more than a 1,000 industries solve complex problems and drive significant growth. His clients include Tony Robbins, Microsoft, and HBO. So if you're struggling to sell yourself or your business, then this is the podcast for you. But that is just one episode. They've covered why blockchain technology will change the world with Tim Draper, a leader in the cryptocurrency space, AI and automation with Pascal Bournet, the author of Intelligent Automation, And for all of the Wolf of Wall Street fans out there, they did an episode with Jordan Belfort himself on sales and closing. Say what you will about the questionable business practices 
or his previous love of shoveling illegal substances up his nose, the man knows how to sell. You'll get the Growth Manifesto podcast wherever you find your podcasts or by following the link in the description below. That's the Growth Manifesto podcast, Australia's leading business, marketing, tech and entrepreneurship podcast. Links for everything will be in the description below. So check them out and then please enjoy the podcast. How would you like to be introduced? I don't know. I've never done a podcast before, I think. So. Well, you say you were head of policy at Positive Money? Head of policy and advocacy. And yeah. advocacy, okay. No, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Well, you, know, you want, you want to, uh, want to give the best representation of yourself. Sure. Um, and it's you, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, awesome. Right, let's go. Um, hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am here with Simon Yule, who is the Head of Policy and Advocacy at Positive Money. Uh, Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. So, uh, why don't you give people like the elevator pitch for sure. Positive Money to give them an idea of, of what you do there? Sure. So, I guess the classic tagline we've used is... Um, we're a research and campaigning organisation working for a money and banking system that supports a fair and more democratic and sustainable economy. So that's the pitch in about 10 seconds. <laughs> but I can understand, you know, that might mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, so I could talk maybe a bit. Yeah, but I mean, we've got loads of time. Man. Sure. I mean, yeah, I, I guess in general, like what we do and, and what I've just said can mean a lot of things. So. Um, we work on a range of things, mainly about looking at you know the, the money and banking system and seeing how it can essentially um, be uh, reformed or even you know transformed to um, meet public purpose. So this could be you know having um, public forms of banking, um, public access to um, digital currencies, um, to you know transforming it so that you know we no longer have an economy built on on growth and um, GDP growth and, and moving within planetary boundaries. So we, we see like the money and banking system as a, a key kind of, um, I guess, pressure point and, and also key lever in building a fairer society because, you know, so many things about our society and our economy are shaped by um, the, the, the way the uh, money and banking system works and the decisions made by big finance. So we're looking to try and democratise that and bring it within um, power of the public to be able to, you know, have more kind of control over what the banking system does, and, you know, um, yeah, and having, being able to build more sustainable models of mm. finance. So quite wide, yeah. Mm. Do you think that, and this is, this is a conversation I've had with a lot of people, do you think that growth is incompatible with do you think growth as such is like an inherently bad thing? Because I've seen I've seen people right make this argument and I, I understand exactly where they're coming from in terms of like finance, because I think it's Nicholas Shackson in his book. Uh, and it's not his study, but he quotes this figure and it sticks in my mind. I think he says it was 4.3 billion or sorry, 4.3 trillion pounds of growth has been lost by the rest of the economy as a result of the this. Finance curse. About, yeah, the finance curse, essentially. The, yeah. It's, it's the, 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 yeah, the, the principle for, for anyone that doesn't know that hasn't listened to my episode with him, mm-hmm. go check it out, uh, is that 
finance has become a drain on the resources in the same way oil or copper or, or anything like that would be on a say a developing nation you see the the, the resource curse in mm. other places and he sort of points to the finance curse as being um just as big a drain on the british economy but to me that doesn't inherently mean that growth is a bad thing I mean, do you disagree the argument about growth is that you know it's really okay so when, when, when economists or policymakers talk about growth the reason they're doing it is because, you know, they think if you can grow the economy, that makes everything easier, right? Mm-hmm. There's more to go around to everyone. Mm-hmm. So instead of like talking about dividing the pie um, between people, um, if you if you grow a bigger pie, you know, um, people can in theory have more. I, mean, I, I guess the issue is um, just kind of bluntly trying to grow the economy um, for, through whatever means necessary means that A, you're you know using huge amounts of um resources which you know we know we live on a um a planet which can't support infinite um, extraction of resources and infinite mm-hmm. growth um so yeah you're um you know you're using more than the planet can support to order to support this growth but also growth isn't actually very good at meeting the kind of objectives or goals that you have um, as a policymaker or, you know, um, as a society. So, you know, the best way of, um, you know, fixing problems um, with the economy or with people's living standards isn't just growing the economy. It's about directly fixing and tackling those problems, whereas growth is seen as, you know, a kind of indirect way of doing that. If you just grow the economy enough, we'll, we'll trickle down mm. and everyone will be better. But, you know, that leads to environmental degradation. That leads to huge inequality. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a there's, a, there's a, a range of reasons why you might disagree with growth, and you know, um, there are a lot of counter arguments too. Um, but either way, I think most people can agree it, GDP as a concept is a very bad measure, mm. and it, you know, isn't very useful. It doesn't really tell us that much. Um, you know, there's that famous um, a member of the public um, said to I think it was Andy Haldane, the chief economist at the Bank of England, um, when he was making a speech about um, growth and saying, you know. We've had ten um, percent growth over the last ten years or something, and a, a member of the audience stands up and says, "Well, that's your growth." You know, we haven't experienced any of that mm. because growth, you know, GDP of the whole country doesn't tell you much. I mean, especially if it's all concentrated in London, mm. um, you know, doesn't tell us much about what people's lives are like outside of you know in the places which are left behind and are you know seeing their living standards fall. So it's, it's a very crude measure, and you know, doesn't tell us much about things that you know you can't put a price on. Like the things that really matter, right? Like, you know, um, well-being and, and um, things like, you know, uh, the domestic labour and things like that, they're not included in, in growth um, statistics, but mm. those are some of the most important things that we need as a society to function. So it's, I would say it's a poor measure and focusing on it. And I guess where we come into it is, you know, the fact that we are dependent on growth because of the way our policy um, institution of policy making works mm. um, like in, if we were if we were to have a recession so uh, a fall in growth people would be unemployed because you know there isn't that safety net otherwise so we, we want to talk more about having an economy which is less dependent on growth um, and you know we can meet people's needs without relying on growing the economy and therefore um, you know wrecking the planet or causing inequality mm. um, 
so I guess we originally came at it from like uh, looking at the financial system and how like basically debt creates uh, growth imperative. So if you um, you know create lots of debt, you need to be able to pay off that debt, and you pay off that debt by extracting more resources and you know um, exploiting more people's labor in order to pay off the debt. So you need a bigger economy to pay off the debt. So finance can create that growth imperative. Mm. So that's kind of, a, I guess, a broad kind of brush of, um, I guess, where we're coming from when we're talking about growth and potentially the issues with it. Mm. I guess where my, maybe maybe this is like a too idealistic view of it, mm. but my my hope is that it's pot, like, for example, the there's a lot of talk in America and also in Britain about the, this idea of the Green New Deal, oh, yeah. which, um, I'm broadly in, in favor of like I, I like the idea that we, we could take the the power of state spending and use it to invest in um, say electrification of railways, um, expanding public transport, uh, putting solar panels on every available space that you mm. can find. I do not understand why that is not like yeah. priority number one and like people talk about spending on 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 climate change related things and i'm just like the government could literally just decide that like 40 percent of their budget was on solar panels yeah, and yeah. for me that still would be growing the economy but not in a in an extractive way yeah yeah so i see the argument you know people talk about you know differentiating between different kinds of growth right? mm. you can have particularly extractive and um you know harmful growth in terms of you know, we're just growing the economy as it is, which is dependent on fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, we could talk about, you know, growth in green kind of alternatives, um, yeah, that would be better, right? There are some things we need to grow, like we need to grow our capacity to respond to the climate crisis and the social crisis facing us as well. Um, but, you know, the way we do that is not through a generalised growth of the economy, because that will always create... Um, more kind of um, pre- pressure on the environment. Um, even like solar panels, for instance, like those have a huge environmental, mm. um, like very, lots of green technologies, you know, rely on extracting um, these rare earth minerals from the global south. And, you know, for instance, you know, people talk about electric cars, well, uh, from, from what I've heard, you know, um, it would require double the amount of cobalt we mm. have on this planet to just replace every petrol car with an electric car. So I think there are like kind of these fantasists who, you know, Elon Musk style people. I mean, I, d- I don't want to disparage, you might be a fan of him, I don't know. Um, mm, uh, I think he's a net good. Okay, fair enough. But I feel like he's a kind of this utopian technologicalist, like who thinks, you know, we can just, you know, have technology, new forms of technology to, to maintain our current system. Mm. And I think, you know, we need to actually talk about changing our ways of life as well. As well as you know, you can't rely on technology. You do need to change our system, and so it's less you know wasteful and, and yeah, um, more stable. Mm. Uh, the one thing I would say is there's a cool, a cool bit of tech coming out of China at the minute that is a cobalt-free battery, okay. which is um, has the potential now. So I think it's just um, they're working on. They've got like prototypes out, and they don't have like the full. It's not in production yet. But instead of being um, like a a wind battery it's a square one that allows for um far more ventilation and it's okay. uh, yeah cobalt free so that's the kind of technology that i would look at yeah, that yeah. Would be hopefully uh, allowing us to grow in a non-damaging way sure. essentially 
Um, but so uh, positive money would would advocate for trying to invest in these industries with with quite quite a substantial amount of money. And the one of the things that I've seen positive money advocate for is using the power of quantitative easing to 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 yeah fund spending on on transforming our economy. Do you want to give people um, an idea of what? Um, quantitative easing is sure. and then how that would work in terms of trying to yeah, use that power to spend on infrastructure yeah. rather than um, pumping money into the, the top of the stock market. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, quantitative easing can begin to get quite complicated quite quickly. <laughs> the the Bank of England, they, they really um, recently, you know, got told by an independent evaluation that they don't understand uh, quantitative easing. <laughs> what? Or they fail to communicate how it works because okay. that yeah because you know there are, it is you know a relatively new policy tool and and the scale that's been done on recently is you know quite unprecedented and no one really can claim to fully understand all the effects because there are you know various theories as to how it works and you know um, various kind of second order effects and consequences um, that can come from it and you know uh, these can be debated but I can try and you know explain practically what it means. So quantitative easing, so um, when, when the government um, borrows money, it issues bonds. These bonds are usually um, bought by uh, the private sector, so pension funds or um, you know, other uh, financial institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, so what quantitative easing involves is um, the Bank of England creating new money to buy these bonds um, from these companies. So instead of these companies having government bonds, they now have a load of cash, basically. Um, and the idea is that um, this would, you know, injecting all of this new money would increase asset prices, so increase the value of these bonds, which would make, um, first of all, kind of, there's, there's this kind of wealth effect, trickle-down effect. Mm-hmm. And the Bank of England's explained in this way before itself, like, make the holders, the people who previously or, or hold government bonds feel wealthier Mm-hmm. And people who hold assets like property in general feel wealthier because there's now more money in the system pushing up asset prices. So they would potentially spend more or invest more um, because you know um, they are wealthier. They they feel they're, they're more able to do that. Um, a kind of second related channel to this is like um, the portfolio rebalancing effect. So the idea that you know um, these companies. Like pension funds, for example, no longer have these bonds on their balance sheet. They've got a load of cash. So they're going to reinvest the cash into something else. So the idea is that that cash might get invested into something useful or productive, which would boost the economy. The problem there is that, um, you know, if they can no longer invest in government bonds, they'll invest in something equally safe, like property. Mm-hmm. So it means, you know, a lot of more money flowing to financial speculation or, or um, property markets rather than um you know the money actually trickling down to the economy so it's basically based on this it's a kind of trickle down economics the bank of england basically floods um financial markets with hundreds of billions of pounds of new money with the hope that this money um you know um, leads to people shifting their portfolios around investing in different things and eventually that will reach the real economy or you know um um, people feeling wealthier people who have assets um you know going out and spending because they feel wealthier. So that kind of wealth effect, trickle down economics. Mm. Um, Can I stop you there? Go for it. Just because I want to clarify exactly 
um, what you said there before you move any further, just for both myself and people listening. Um, so essentially what you're saying is the government um, hands out government bonds and so then the so Bank just, of England yeah. comes in and buys them yeah, from so basically, the companies. Yeah, so okay. it's like, this is where it gets, I guess, um, potentially controversial because what people might say the Bank of England is doing is financing the government directly. Okay. So creating new money, which is finance. So if they bought the bonds directly from the government, that would be a, a direct form of financing. They're essentially lending directly to the government. But what they're doing is the government sells them to the private sector first. Okay. And the Bank of England buys them on secondary markets off the private sector. So it's basically like a, a kind of a, a magic trick kind of shuffle just to make it look like they're not funding the government. Um, but, you know, that was never really the intention of quantitative easing from the beginning. Right? It's kind of changed over time. Like the, the, the idea of quantitative easing, the reason they did it was basically because um, after the financial crisis, um, you know, interest rates were as low as they could go. There was no real means of getting banks to lend more because, uh, you know, um, there's no incentive um, to, to increase your lending if, if you know, um, interest rates can't go any low. You can't, it's like pushing on a string. Um, so basically, yeah, the Bank of England um, had to, because of the way most of um, our economy, our economic activity is based on bank lending um, to, to make things happen, basically. You need, that's where most of our money comes from, as I, I imagine we might get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, yeah, the, the, the kind of principal channel with which um, policymakers might boost the economy is through getting banks to lend them. And so the re- they couldn't lower low interest rates anymore. Uh, so they had to just create loads of money and basically in- capitalize the banks indirectly and get them to start lending more. Um, didn't really work. It has led to massive inequality. Um, but now we're seeing potentially during the last um, year, during the COVID crisis, year and a half actually, um, yeah, God. Keeps um, going, yeah. <laughs> so the, the government has borrowed huge amounts of money to pay for all of this. And the Bank of England has at the same time been creating huge amounts of money to buy those bonds the government has issued to borrow to, to fund public spending. So, yeah, it looks like they're basically helping the government pay for things indirectly. Um, and, you know, their argument or the argument people would make in favour of that is that they're, yeah, this is helping the government, um, you know, spend more. It's like protecting um, the government from having a sovereign debt crisis, as, like if, if bonds um, yields rise too much, um, that would be a problem for the government. So they're, you know, preemptively. Um, okay, well, what would that entail? So, I mean, I don't, I don't yeah, I don't want to say sovereign bond crisis really because that can't, a sovereign. Government can't, but, has um, its own central bank can't default. So I mean, I mean more specifically. So you said that that if the the Bank of England weren't buying the government yeah. bonds, that the, in, the yield would go up too much. What does that mean for so in certain layman's terms? Yeah. So basically, government borrowing will become more expensive, right? Okay. Um, so yeah, the what quantitative easing does is kind of suppress the yields by you know um, in, if. If you increase asset prices, that automatically means a, a, a fall in the yield, um, as you know, as a percentage of the um, total asset. Um, so yeah, basically, what it means is um, yeah, the Bank of England 
um, making it cheaper for the government to borrow by like stepping into the market and buying loads of stuff up. Okay. So increasing demand for it, lowering yields. It gets like, yeah, it's, it can sound quite technical, but mm. essentially what it is is, yeah, if the gov- if the Bank of England didn't do that, we could have a lot higher and the government didn't, you know, do anything to else, you know, to, to try and mitigate that. We could have, you know, a lot higher interest on government bonds and that could lead to all kinds of issues with financial markets, um, which, yeah, rely on government bonds as like a key kind of building block in the financial system. Mm. So the, the bond, so the yield on a bond is the interest that the government is paying on it. Yeah. So essentially, yeah. yeah. In, in, yeah. Simple yeah. terms, yeah. Okay, so um, then, so we're basically saying that the Bank of England has the ability to just add money to their balance sheet, that they can just sort of go, well, we need a, you know, half a trillion pounds over the next two years. Let's just type that into their computer and yeah. then we'll say that we've got it. They, they, they can do that and they have basically done that. Hmm. I mean, some people might say it's like an asset swap. They're essentially swapping these new central bank reserves, which are like highly liquid um, kind of assets with um, government bonds, which are more kind of long dated. Mm. Um, But essentially it's creating new money. Um, And yeah, like, so basically it puts to bed the argument that, you know, there isn't enough money. You know, we we can't afford Mm. to pay for things because, you know, we run out of money basically. Mm. Because the Bank of England, can always create new money. It's not always the best idea for it to do it. You know, that's up for people to decide. Right? But ultimately what it throws out of the window is this idea that, you know, there is a limit on the amount governments can spend. Okay. So how would positive money advocate using that power better? I mean, so it depends how, what, what like context you're talking about. So like in the last, um, the last decade of austerity pre-COVID, mm-hmm. um, what you know, what we really needed was better coordination between both the government and the Bank of England. So the real problem over the, the last decade pre-COVID was that the government was doing austerity, so basically cutting um, the amount of money it was spending, and then kind of relying on the Bank of England to make up for that and stop and to prevent the economy going into recession by doing lots of quantitative easing. Um, so what you know should have been done really um, was kind of the um, government not relying on the Bank of England to use pure monetary policy, but essentially both these institutions working together to increase the amount of fiscal spending the government did. And, you know, that to, to make sure, yeah, it's a, don't do austerity, invest um, to fight the recession. That's what yeah. they should have done. So, you know, if, instead of... It's quite classically Keynesian. Exactly. Like, it, it's not that controversial. And, uh, you know, instead of the Bank of England creating 445 billion, as it did from 2019 to um, 2016, um, they could have done potentially much better with a lot less. So if the money was spent directly by the government. So if they gave, for instance, 50 billion pounds to the government to, to spend, that money could have been spent on, you know, investing in, you know, uh, tackling the climate emergency or, you know, investing in public services, all of those things. And the money would have actually gone to people's pockets. The problem with quantitative easing, the money stayed in the financial system. And, you know, people don't 
that money doesn't really trickle into the real economy. Mm -hmm. It just gets passed around and reinvested into um, financial assets. So you didn't need to create as much money to have to basically keep the economy going and um, you know prevent a recession if the money was actually being spent. Mm. Um, so you need a lot more money to have that same effect um, by indirectly kind of um, you know trying to get the banks to, to lend more by doing quantitative easing. <laughs> Sorry. So um, you're essentially saying that. Uh, the amount of mo the amount of money that was spent, and what did you say, four hundred and four hundred forty-five billion. It's now like eight hundred ninety-five uh, million. Yeah, but the the, the four hundred forty-five figure I've seen it was from. Did you say two thousand nine to two thousand sixteen? Yeah. Mm. Okay, so what you're saying is that amount of money um, is far more than would have been required to elicit the same amount of economic growth had you invested that yeah. in um, infrastructure, for example, rather yeah. than. Pumping up the asset prices that, that yeah. just benefits the the wealthiest in our but, economy. Yeah, I guess to put it this way, um, with you know quantitative easing over that period, for every pound they created, only eight pence really seemed to make it into the real economy. So they could have achieved the same by putting eight pence per that pound, whatever the math works out at, about a tenth. Yeah, um, into real economy, and it would have had that same effect mm. and it wouldn't have led to increasing inequality um you know um, you'd be raising people's incomes and you wouldn't just be inflating asset prices mm. so that's what they they could have done um but yeah they, they, they could have if, if they don't want to decide um who gets the money they could have distributed it equally to households um and that would be fairer I think I think the figure was uh, six thousand pounds per per household or per person. The full four hundred forty-five billion. Yeah, um, you know that they they might not need to do that. Um, that could, you know, um, be more inflationary. Uh, I mean, yeah, the problem a lot of central banks faced over um, after the financial crisis was they couldn't even get inflation up to target. Mm. Um, so that's why they had to do as much quantitative easing because. Generally, after you've had a big financial crisis, there was like a tendency towards deflation. You know, no one's lending anymore. Mm -hmm. um, people were just trying to like shrink their balance sheets and um, fix their own finances. And if everyone, and if everyone was doing that at the same time, the private sector does that and the government does that, you have a recession. Today's episode is sponsored by the Growth Manifesto podcast, Australia's leading business, marketing, tech, and entrepreneurship podcast. The Growth Manifesto podcast is a Zoom web series brought to you by Web Profits, a digital growth consultancy that helps global and national businesses attract, acquire, and retain customers through digital marketing. One of the most interesting episodes for me of late has been an interview with Michael Sonnenschein, CEO at Grayscale Investments, the world's largest digital asset manager. After launching in 2013, they focused exclusively on digital assets, beginning with Bitcoin. And their goal is to offer the opportunity to invest in the cryptocurrency world without needing to rely on wallets or any of that newfangled technology that goes along with it. This is a crucial discussion to listen to for anyone interested in this space, as crypto will only go parabolic and change the world if it becomes widely adopted. So Grayscale's pursuit of this in the traditional world of finance is going to be crucial to making the step to widespread acceptance and adoption. In this episode, they walk through the history of the firm, why it was founded, and where they envisioned the company and the crypto space going in the future. That's the Growth Manifesto podcast, Australia's leading business, marketing, tech, and entrepreneurship podcast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.
Running any form of YouTube show or podcast can be really difficult at times. There is so much to keep up to date with, new platforms, SEO tricks, trends, and a whole host of new ways to market your show. Thankfully for all of us overwhelmed creators out there, there is now a solution. Podcast Movement's daily newsletter. In the last few weeks alone, I've learned an amazing amount of stuff. They offered some fantastic podcast SEO tricks, gave me the heads up on YouTube's new subtitle editor, and recommended a free and amazingly detailed analytics tool for my podcast. The Podmove Daily is a free daily newsletter that is geared towards anyone who's a podcaster, looking to get into podcasting, or in the podcast industry. It goes out every morning at 11.15 Eastern, featuring fresh news, curated resources, industry announcements, and more. It's the best rundown of everything happening in the podcast world right now. And you can check out all of the most recent issues by going to podcastmovement.com forward slash today's issue. And best of all, they've created a special landing page just for listeners and viewers of this show. You can go to podcastmovement.com forward slash chatter. That's podcastmovement.com forward slash chatter to check out their personalized page just for us. So if you want to be up to date on what is happening in the podcast world and get the best tips and tickets to keep your show growing, subscribe to the PodMove Daily Podcast from Podcast Movement. You won't be disappointed. Yeah. So um, one of the criticisms I've seen of, of this idea that we could just put that, that sort of spending power to better use is that it would drive up inflation. And because you are flooding the economy with extra money and therefore inherently decreasing the value of every pound that, that is in circulation at this point, what do you make of that I criticism? Mean, we're already doing that. There is already inflation, but it's for asset prices, right? The, the things which aren't measured under the Bank of England's remit, which is consumer price inflation, mm -hmm. so things like um, property and housing and other uh, financial assets. We've had huge inflation there because that's where the money is going, right? Um, we we could you know see more inflation if the money if all, say if like all of the money went into the real economy. Sure, we'd have a lot higher inflation, but you know that's not necessarily what we're arguing for. Um, if you know we we could have had a smaller amount of money put directly into the real economy in a way which wouldn't have increased inflation um, or, or would have kept inflation at target. Um, and then you wouldn't have had the asset price inflation. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the thing with inflation, it's very difficult to even, central bankers don't understand it. And they, they tend to like underestimate, uh, like um, overestimate the amount of inflation we're going to have. Um, no one really understands fully. There's all kinds of theories, I guess, on how inflation Maybe it's like kind of cost push inflation or whether the money supplied is a determinant of inflation. There's all kinds of conflicting evidence on this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like what we're seeing, especially what we've seen over the last, like, um, I guess under like the period of globalization, um, we've seen huge deflationary forces, um, especially in the Western <coughs> world, because, you know, uh, think manufacturing and, and industry has been exported to places where wages are cheaper. And we're importing um, these things at cheaper costs. So that's a huge driver of um, kind of a deflation in force. Mm. Um, As money flows out of the, the country. Right? Um, 
Not necessarily. It's more just the cost to produce things. Okay. Um, means, you know, um, prices are lower. Mm. Um, so you can buy a TV for half the price, for instance, that you could have if it was made in the UK. So things become cheaper, right? Uh, I think that's the best way of thinking. But I mean, I think, you know, inflation isn't the biggest worry. The biggest worry is like unemployment and kind of spare capacity being wasted. And, you know, I, I personally like, you know, I don't know if you've come across the work of um, Abba Lerner. Um, he, came, he, he coined the idea of functional finance. Okay. And essentially, you know, the role of um, policy, like money, monetary, monetary and fiscal policies, to make sure that, you know, there is enough money in the system to buy up all of the goods in the economy and therefore achieve full inflation, whether it's um, uh, the private sector providing that money or whether it's the kind of banking system. Uh, the Bank of England or the government providing that money, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's, you know, if you basically, um, if you fix unemployment um, and like inflation fixes itself, right? Um, you can, that is the main thing. And this is what, I, if you've come across this idea of modern monetary theory, mm -hmm. it's quite similar. It's the idea that, you know, inflation will kind of stabilize um, once you've got full employment. Um, yeah, that's like the, the real thing to, to be, targeting rather than inflation. So um, one of the things that, that has been sort of in favor of, of modern monetary theory and uh, is kind of, in my mind at least, vaguely vindicated it, now we get to see the sort of very long-term effects mm. of it, but has been the the amount of money that we've spent over the, the past 18 months um, on say, furlough schemes and you know, the like, the very successful world-beating test and trace program. Yeah. Um, and, and things like that. So it hasn't caused hyperinflation and crashed the economy as, as people sort of suggested that it, it might. But is, is, has, has what we've done like simulated full employment in, a, in, in the sense that we gave everyone, you know, furlough payments and a lot of people went on universal credit. Obviously, that's not a lot of money. Um, and hopefully they don't go through with that 20% or 25% cut. Mm. But th that's, would you say that that's, yeah, simulated full, full employment in a way in that like everyone has got some money to spend and uh, and therefore it's, yeah, that the we've kind of, yeah. I guess it, it may have simulated potentially the demand side of full employment. Mm -hmm. um, though I, 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 I also kind of question that because, you know, as you say, like, yeah, um, still people's wages will most likely be less mm -hmm. if they're on furlough 80 percent um of their wages means there is less de that's less demand um i guess what it doesn't do is, is simulate the supply side effects of employment which mm -hmm. is that you would have um more kind of incre you're increasing the productive capacity of the economy of mm -hmm. employment um sounds like growth to me yeah, I mean, that's why these things. I mean, I personally, I try and avoid talking about a kind of degrowth stuff or stuff like that because I find it difficult, you know, to talk in the typical macroeconomic jargon that most people would be convinced by. That you have to speak to people, especially policymakers. In um, it's difficult because it, yeah, like there are tensions there between. Like, okay, are you talking about growth or? But I mean, for me my main priority is you know making sure everyone has enough to live on 
And you know, at the moment, if you're seeing like cuts to universal credit, people getting put off furlough, people won't have enough um, to live on. And I think you know, we the the the, the initial impact of the pandemic we saw was uh, disinflation. So there was that there was months where inflation went to like zero, mm-hmm. and that was because you know people weren't able to spend as much. So yeah, I think like the the reason things may change is because people come out and spend more. But you know, looking at some of the Bank of England's projections and 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 other projections, it suggests that um, sure we might um, consumer demand might go up to where it was pre-pandemic, but it's not going to. There's no reason to think it will go up any higher than that. So we'll have probably the the same kind of um, you know, amount of demand we had before, if not less. Um, so I personally, I think this is like a transitory thing. What us like um, supply chains, but there has been a lot of disruption to supply chains, and certain commodity prices have spiked. But you know, as the you know global economy goes back to gets back to normal, and China starts like you know. Dump, dumping commodities on the global market, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure they're keen to do again, we'll see the, the same kind of disinflationary forces that we've seen over the last 10 years. So I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be overly kind of um, relaxed about inflation. I think it could be uh, something to worry about. But I think the real problem is like sorting out the like what the structural scarring to the economy. You know, people, whole industries are now likely, you know, potentially changed and people's jobs may be lost. You've got to sort that out, and I think a Green New Deal is is the way, you know, making sure we are creating enough like um, quality, socially useful jobs. I think it's an opportunity to be doing that, and that that is getting that right is more important than worrying too much about temporary rise in inflation. And as I said before, like the the big kind of inflationary drivers still, you know, we've ignored. Like sorry, the places where inflation are happening in asset prices, in in house prices. Mm That is, you know, what policymakers ignore, and yeah, that's, I mean, one of the reasons why the financial crisis is so bad because um, we've kind of, you know, taken the eye off um, what was happening to to asset prices, um, and, and could, you know, be a reason why we might have another financial crisis because, yeah, um, we we don't see that as a problem in house, but we see it as a good thing if house prices go up, um, but. To every rise in asset prices, there's a uh, corresponding rise in, in debt um, for someone else. So, yeah, um, it's not it's not a good thing. Is there such thing as too much debt? Like, Depends what kind of debt, right? Okay. So, um, what what sort of debt would you consider to be acceptable, and what yeah, sort of debt? Not? I mean, I would broadly kind of distinguish between public and private debt. I think we can think of public debt as essentially like a claim on society, almost. Like, you know, we have millions of taxpayers um, who, you know, over decades um, and generations can pay the money back. And it's kind of like an investment. Um, there's, no, there's no problem having a lot of public debt if we're also getting, you know, assets in return, right? If you invest, that's a sensible thing to do. Any business, if they want to improve themselves, will borrow to, to invest. So I think... You, what you want to look at is really the um, kind of amount of interest the government is paying on its on its public debt um, to the private sector, essentially. And you know, as we saw um, during the pandemic, even though um, we've seen record amounts of borrowing, mm-hmm. the amount of interest paid on on um, on that debt actually fell um, because of record low interest rates. So, if interest rates are low and the government can't default, 
there isn't a problem, um, which is where we are. Um, private debt, however, that is more of a problem. Um, what private debt often leads to is a kind of, uh, I believe the connect, correct pronunciation is rentierism, or as I would all usually call it rentierism. So essentially private financial claims on the rest of the economy. And it, it leads to like a debt overhead where, you know, huge increasing amounts of wealth and money in the economy are being siphoned off um, by the wealthy. So it's kind of financialization, that kind of problem of more and more of our money or of our kind of, you know, productive output as an economy is going to paying off debt to wealthy people. Mm. That's not a good thing. That is like basically trickle up economics. Uh, so that's what I've been wor worried about. And I am worried about, and I think that's something we need to be talking a lot more about rather than public debt. And also that's what, where the seeds to a financial crisis would lie. Um, those are, that's where the risk is. Um, you know, as we saw in 2008, it was a private financial sector. As, as, despite what the Tories told everyone, it wasn't um, the Labour government spending too much on, on the NHS, which bankrupts or, you know, crashed the economy. It was, you know, um, reckless speculation um, in the mortgage market mm. um, and private finance, which crashed the economy. Um, though, you know, New Labour aren't um, without blame for, for laying the, the foundations of that, but that's another um, conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, you mentioned there that like large public debt isn't a problem. Now, to me, then, so if you're if you're advocating advocating for like a less growth focused economy at the very least, what happens to that debt? Like, does someone eventually have to pay for that? Like, are we saddling the next generations? Because this is something I see talked about. Yeah, I mean, but that's usually a misunderstanding of how public borrowing works. These are essentially uh, bonds that get, get rolled over. Hmm. It's not like at some point the buck stop, stops. You literally just issue a new bond to pay off that bond. It's, you know, you can do it basically unlimited amounts as long as, you know, people still have trust in the government. Um, and, you know, the government is able to, um, you know, credibly um, um, back those its liabilities. Um, so, yeah, I, I think people often misunderstand that. Um, but I think there was a valid point in terms of like debt can create a growth imperative, right? So if there is a huge amount of, of debt, whether that's public or private, um, particularly private, that may create an imperative to grow the economy to pay off that debt. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bank, the, the government, if it, if it can't pay off its debt, can also, can always, the Bank of England can monetize it. So just buy the debt off it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in theory, there are no issues in that. Um, so yeah, I guess. Yeah, that, that's what you shouldn't be worried about, you know, future generations. And, you know, I think... Screw them. Well, I mean, <laughs> to be fair, if I was a future generation as well, I would much prefer that my ancestors invested in saving the planet um, and I would happily pay repay that debt, even if I had to, if, right. if I had to. Um, but, you know, as I say, like, you know, it's, it's not like... These are like um, government bonds essentially being rolled over and, you know, the Bank of England can always monetize it. So, yeah, there isn't really a worry there. Um, and, yeah, so I think the, the main thing you want to look at is just the amount of interest payments which are going to 
um, the private sector. And it's usually the wealthier people who own um, the government's debt. So it could be, you know, arguably a kind of regressive mm. transfer of wealth, like the government paying wealthy um, bondholders. Um, but, you know, that's, again, something you can find other policy solutions to get around. So what is money? This is something okay. that I have, I have discussed yeah, yeah. with quite a few people talking in terms of um, mainly in discussions about cryptocurrency. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, what in your mind is, what was money? Okay. What is it? I, I mean, I think the way to explain that or like to, to talk about this is there are two competing theories of money, right? Um, the commodity theory of money, this idea that money is something like gold, you know, there's a, a, a scarce resource um, and, and you think of it as like another kind of a factor of production, right? You, you need, you need, um, uh, you know, grain and, um, infrastructure, but you also need money as well. Mm-hmm. And we need to, to get the money. And I think the common misconception people think about money is more in this kind of commodity theory of money. Like, um, if you ask someone where money comes from, they tend to think it's something to do with like the gold standard. Like mm-hmm. there's a limited amount of money, which is tied to gold. And, you know, if, if someone wants more money, they have to trade with other people to get their money, essentially. Like that's, I, I asked my dad, like, where do you think money comes from? He said something about, I don't know, we trade it somewhere, we get their gold or something. And, you know, that's fair enough. Like, we're not really taught that, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, I, I remember, like, doing GCSE business studies and the teacher was asked about this and she couldn't give an answer. She said something about the gold standard, which... As you may know, the, the gold standard yeah. hasn't existed since the 1970s. Yeah. Um, but there's still this popular conception that money is something to do with, there's like a, you can't just create more of it. Like mm. there's like a, a kind of fixed amount of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- this is like the kind of uh, narrative the, the Tories and, and people who are opposed to public spending say, you know, oh, there's not enough money, right? As if, you know, there's a, a finite pool that we, we draw from. Um, that's one theory. So that's the commodity theory of money. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the credit theory of money, which I subscribe to, and it is, you know, more kind of shown in the reality of how the banking system works and the monetary system works. Mm-hmm. In that money is kind of a, a social um, relation which is created um, in the act of, of lending, essentially. So when banks um, lend, they don't take existing this existing pool of savings. Yeah. They create new money, um, and then um, they they are then issuing um, a liability against themselves, a kind of promise to pay. So money is essentially a promise to pay, um, and yeah, like it. The, 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 I guess the reason people get confused about it is, um, is a promise to pay what? Like, because if you go to the Bank of England, do you hand over your your ten pound note and yeah. be like, I, I want. I want to be, I want you to pay me. That was give you another £10 note. They won't give you silver or whatever they may have done in, in the olden days. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like money, like anyone can kind of, I think there's um, Hyman Minsky put it this way, the, the economist. Um, anyone can create money. It's the problem is getting it accepted. Mm-hmm. So money is essentially like a um, circulating IOU, something, you know, that we can use as like a kind of, something which allows trade um to ha- allows us to trade um and you know is created every day um there isn't a finite stock of it it's just you know how much kind of trust we have in people will 
um, dictate, you know, how much of their money you're willing to accept and, you know, all of that. Um, but to like give a kind of proper definition of money, if that would also be so like, I guess the way a lot of people, um, the classical kind of explanation of money is talking about like the functions of money. Um, and there are like three main functions. Uh, one is, um, store of value. So money is something you hold, um, knowing that you can then consume at another point. So you you can save it and then consume later and, and its value will still hold. Mm-hmm. Um, it's then there's a medium of exchange, which is, you know, something which can enable you to transact an exchange with someone like a common kind of denominator that you can exchange with. Yeah, like I'm going to go for a beer afterwards and I'm going to have to hand over money in exchange for exactly. a nice cold pint. Yeah, and <laughs> you, I mean, you could try bartering with something else, but money is like, you know, universally kind of accepted by everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a convenient means of exchange. Um, and then there's unit of account. So money is, you know, what, um, what things are denominated in. Um, so... Yeah, the um, the reason we use pounds is mostly because everything is denominated in pounds, so that makes it um, become a form of money. And this is where it gets into the point of where I don't think a lot of cryptocurrencies are actually money um, because they they tend to focus on this on the store of value function of money, mm-hmm. which I think arguably is the the least important function of money. Okay. If, if you want to store value, there are other assets to do, mm. so to do that, and and the people who want a lot of people like cryptocurrencies because they think, you know, similar to gold, there's a finite supply of it, so therefore its value will increase. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fine, but I wouldn't consider that the basis of the currency necessarily. I would consider that that I, I like to own crypto assets, as other people often do, because you know, if your whole like your whole use case for cryptocurrencies is that they don't, you know, um, they aren't as easily devalued, they um, you know, increase in value over time. Like, why would you want to use it as a currency? Mm-hmm. Like, if I can hold on to my cryptocurrency and just see it appreciate, why would I want to trade it for something which won't? Mm-hmm. And I'd rather use something else, which would kind of depreciate to, to, to spend money. Um, and yeah, like, I think that's a, that's a real kind of challenge for like crypto. It's like, Okay, we're gonna get we're gonna, we'll okay. get to crypto in a second. Just I want well, I want to finish the last point there because okay. you you said there you said there was three. Three uses of, of money. There was three a, functions. Three of functions money. of money. money. Sorry, money. there was an, uh, a store of value, a medium of an exchange, and what's the third one? Unit of account. A unit of account. So for something to be money, it has to meet all of those functions. Okay. So yeah. So what in your mind gives it value? Because this is this is a discussion that my mum has had with me when she's talking about when she's asking me about cryptocurrency. And she's like, well, yeah, but it's just numbers or it's just there. And I'm just like, my, my response is always just like, that's what money is. Yeah. In my, at least, like the pound is, is, is worth to me, at least anyway, is, is just as valuable as say um, a Bitcoin or, or a Dogecoin because it is based on the confidence that you have in it that you will be able to exchange yeah. it for something. To me, that's what it means. But maybe there's like a slightly, <clears throat> different meaning or for slightly well, different I mean because um, when you reason. think about what are you exchanging cryptocurrencies for like Dogecoin or Bitcoin you're exchanging it for pounds mm, well I mean I've, I've paid a few people in, yeah, in Cardano sure. that was real fun yeah. actually <laughs> I, I guess what distinguishes the pound as having value as a currency for me is that I can 
always reliably pay for goods and services now. That's, you know, whereas cryptocurrency, there's very few things I can realistically buy. And, you know, even if I wanted to, for Bitcoin, for example, the transaction costs are really high, so I don't know why I would. Unless I wanted, like, there's a use case for, like, potentially anonymous forms of payment. That's mm. a good idea, I think. But there seem to be better forms like Monero or whatever people use these days. I'm not that Yeah, today. privacy coins. Yeah, like, for that function. Like, I think that's a good function. But to, to, like, for me, yeah, it's not really a currency if you, if there aren't goods denominated in it, if you can't, the power, yeah, you don't, it doesn't have innate value in that. It's only valuable in so much that you can convert it into pounds, which you can then convert into goods and services. Mm. Like, okay. If things were priced in crypto, mm-hmm. I more, more widely, I would be, well, okay, it's its own form of money. But for me, it's just a kind of like shadow asset of like, you know, like you're, you have to exchange it. Gold or yeah, something. Yeah, like, it's not money in its own right. Okay. So then would you say that when, so so today actually, or is it, is it today? It's today. Today is the first day that Bitcoin is legal tender in El Salvador. Yeah. So they're running on a thing called the Lightning Network, um, which is built on top of the Bitcoin um, like standard layer. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering this, anyone who's listening, who's better versed than this, this is just how I've had it explained to me. So that it's um, essentially, it's built on top of it and that it uses um, everyone having um, Lightning Network wallets in order to exchange the the money across that without the, the monstrous transaction mm-hmm. cost. So it's gonna be like, you're gonna be able to send it, it, it for the cost of pennies rather than the huge like transaction fees. So like say, for example, in El Salvador, that that becomes um, quite widely used. Um, I'm waiting for the Silicon Valley bros to move down there and like gentrify a nice spot of it, yeah, and then yeah, I'll yeah. just go retire there. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the would you then consider it, once it reaches the point where it's more widely used, say even in just one country, would you at that point consider perhaps even just that particular cryptocurrency to be money at that point? I mean, if people are using it to transact for goods and services and uh, prices are denominated across the economy in it. Mm-hmm. I guess it would be more like a, 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 you know, money. But I guess the other issue would be everyone else using the cryptocurrency um, would want to use it as an asset, essentially. So they'd be kind of, I, think, I feel like most of the people who invested into crypto, particularly Bitcoin, mm-hmm. do so because they want it, the price to go up. Yeah. Um, and yeah if to the moon i believe so, yeah so yeah like i i yeah i i think the main issue is if if, you, if it did become a form of money is like how do you run an economy on that like because especially with decent like decentralization has its benefits in mm-hmm. like kind of transparency and accountability but then like if there's a problem like if you look you know if we i, I think Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin have a tendency towards their kind of deflationary currency. Mm-hmm. Um, if you need to basically um, increase the amount of money in the economy to get get economic activity going, there's this classic kind of Keynesian mm-hmm. um, um, policy. How would you do that if you if you can't like you're basically your monetary policy and your by extent, your fiscal policy and your democratic policy making as a country 
you, you don't have much control over it because whoever owns all the rest of the crypto, they have to agree to if you want to create more of it. Or like I don't know, I don't see it as like a democratic route. I'd rather the money I use in the economy is controlled by something accountable to the public. Um, maybe that's just my point of view, but I think I I think El Salvador could get in a lot. I mean, El Salvador's got his own problems yeah, yeah, in that yeah. they rely on the dollar anyway, mm-hmm. which they don't control. Yeah, yeah. So this wouldn't necessarily make be any worse than relying on the dollar, really. Um, it may be like more volatile and, you know, um, have yeah. other problems, but like, ultimately, at the end of the day, they won't have control over their own economic policy. Mm-hmm. So you're basically saying that the, there's a, whilst there's a lot of, critiques of, of of like traditional fiat money that the inherent value of it is that it can be controlled by a government who is theoretically at least under the control of like a populist um like a democratic nation and that they can say okay well we, we need more of this we need you to print some money so that we can make solar panels or we can I don't know, we need more bus drivers or the the, the 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 inherent value of like a like a fiat money supply is that they have the ability to turn it on and off yeah. in order to sort of prevent the sort of volatility that would, I mean, that would the, come yeah, with. the main thing you want to prevent is deflation and you know you just need to look at history why that is like so so to explain deflation, it's essentially the value of money um, getting um, more valuable mm-hmm. and the price of everything else becoming less valuable. So, I mean, the issue with this is that um, one person's kind of um, spending is another person's income. So um, if, pe- if money is becoming more valuable, people will be more likely to try and hold on to it. Just like, as I said, with crypto, people don't want to use it as a a means of exchange because they want to hold on to it. So economic activity stores. And because... Because they're thinking, well, if I just hold on to this in a yeah, month, why it'll I be more valuable. So, okay. so that's like one way it's bad. I guess the other, I think, potentially more serious way it's bad um, is that like a reduction in prices. Um, you, you know, you, we're only looking at it at one side. Um, we're looking at, okay, like our money can buy more, um, but, you know, so people selling you the goods are getting less mm-hmm. in response. And then they no longer invest more. They lay people off. Mm-hmm. Um, it basically means economic activity slumps. Um, and yeah, like the, the value of debt become a lot bigger, right? Um, because for instance, if you've, if you've taken out a £50,000 loan to fund your business mm-hmm. and you were selling things to pay for it, like a widget or, you know, whatever this a water bottle you're paying um you're selling those at like 10 pounds mm-hmm. um if those if prices fall and it becomes more like you're now selling them at for five pound or eight pound or whatever you have to sell a lot more to pay off that debt mm-hmm. so that debt is a lot bigger um so i mean so we saw this in the in the great depression right um most famously in the us um, but also in the UK, um, when we tried to go back onto the gold standard um, under Winston Churchill in the nineteen twenties, um, we essentially saw it was a terrible thing to do because you know it sounds like a good idea in fiscal. My money's worth more, right? Like mm-hmm. that's good for me. Mm-hmm. But your income becomes less because you know your income relies on on other people's 
um, payment. But, and essentially, yeah, it, it's really hard to get out of. So Japan has been battling with um, a depression or deflation since like they had a, a financial crisis in the 90s. And they've never really recovered from it um, because it's, it's, a, it's just difficult to, to stop because, you know, people won't, it's hard to make people spend money if they think they can just hold on to the money and become wealthy and things like that. Like a, de- a deflationary spiral, um, most economists are more scared of than an inflationary spiral for, for a range of reasons. But I would say like, yeah, the main thing is that it, you need a growing kind of, or at least stable if not growing, um, money supply in order to for um, economic activity to to be pursued essentially mm-hmm. and for people to be employed and for people to get incomes which they can then um, increase your income because when they spend that increases your income and vice versa so that's kind of a, maybe a bit of a fragmented kind of explanation but it, you know it's quite it's, it sounds intuitive like inflation is bad so maybe deflation is good but I think we haven't really there, there isn't really a kind of public understanding of why deflation is necessarily bad because we haven't necessarily seen it since the 1920s um, in this country. And it, it was disastrous for the UK. Like Industry collapsed, um, unemployment rose significantly. And yeah, that's what deflation does. Um, so it's better to have inflation as long as people are still working. And, and, and if, you know, um, as long as people pay is going up, um, it's not a problem. But um, yeah, of course you can have a, a spiral where people's pay goes up and then inflation goes up. But like at the end of the day, these are numbers. Right? Mm. Um, you can always kind of find solutions to that. And I guess the only people it, it necessarily um, hurts are, are people who've um, lent, uh, sorry, um, yeah, lent money. So the value of your uh, like mortgage, for instance, for the bank. It's no, it's no longer worth as much, um, but it's good for you because your mortgage becomes a lot easier to pay off. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It is complicated, but like there are like yeah, there are lots of different things. But I think essentially what you you want to avoid is a deflationary monetary system, um, and yeah, that's my worry of cryptocurrency. People who haven't learned the pro- the lessons of the gold standard and the problems of that um, often trying to return to gold. But there was a very good reason. We came off gold because it it didn't um, it, it's not flexible enough to meet the needs of the economy. So you either have unemployment um, or or yeah you um, yeah, you have to revalue and devalue and stuff. Um, well, yeah. thankfully, the internet's favorite cryptocurrency, Dogecoin, is uh, is an inflationary one. So oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. so whenever whenever that becomes the the world standard. Uh, <laughs> well, does, it, does it just create more than mm-hmm. there's a fixed supply? Although it's less inflationary than the US dollar, yeah, which is a really interesting because people are like, oh, there's just millions of them being created all the time. When yeah. you work out like the total supply um, and how much gets created every year, no, I can't remember the exact Yeah, I mean, it's, it's huge. I mean, it, and it does make fiat currency sound bad, right? If it's just being created, like a huge amount. So, like, you, you're right, there are like questions over accountability, over like who's creating it and mm. where it's going. Um, but I think, really, personally, and people might disagree with me, I think fiat currency is a pretty good invention in, in that it allows us to manage um, the economy a lot a lot better than, than we would if we had like a fixed amount of money. Mm-hmm. That's history of shows. That's my point of view. I imagine people disagree. 
uh, if, if, if their fans are cryptocurrency. That's fine. That's what this whole, this, this literally entire endeavor of having this podcast is about, is getting different people's perspectives on stuff. Um, so uh, to finish up then, uh, do you want to tell people um, maybe where they can find positive money and, and some of the stuff that you guys do? To, yeah, so um, yeah, on all the usual places. So um, our website is positivemoney.org. Um, we're on Twitter, I think, at Positive Money UK. We're on Facebook, Instagram. Yeah, sign up to our mailing list. Um, yeah, and yeah, like um, we're we're keen to basically explore these issues and you know have debates and have conversations. Even if you if you've disagreed with what I've said, I'm, we're keen to to still like challenge the kind of mainstream thinking which we think you know serves both all sides um, equally bad. Um, so yeah, it's been a pleasure to speak, and um, yeah, I look forward to to hearing more of you of course yeah no problem also people uh did you hear that that as an excuse to get in touch and send angry emails yeah if you to just, positive if you money please do like um i'm I, yeah i'm up for debate um yeah like i, I recognize not everyone agrees on these things but we should have these debates yeah well i mean that's what the whole my whole point basically about the entire world is we, should, like, we gotta talk to each other yeah. thanks so much for listening i really appreciate you tuning in and making it all the way to the end of the show Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.